Well, for the past couple of Sundays, we've been talking about a heavy but very important subject matter, God's sovereign election. And election is a recurring theme, as you know, in Scripture that most people associate with the Apostle Paul. When we think about election, the first thing we think about is Paul and a couple particular chapters in the New Testament, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, places like that. But the thing we have to understand is that long before Paul became a believer, Jesus himself was laying down the framework for how men and women are chosen by God and drawn by the Holy Spirit to come to him and be saved. And there are several places in John chapter 6 that we've been looking at in recent weeks where Jesus helps us to piece this process together. Now, today we're going to look at the other side of what we call the salvation coin, the responsibility that humans have in coming to Christ. What is the, the uh, action step that we take in response to what God has done? What, what steps do we take in response to God's choosing and his drawing. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, before we go there, let me just re- briefly refresh your memories on some of the things that Jesus has already declared in John chapter 6 to this, this crowd of men. Remember, he's speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum. So his audience is going to be men, Jewish men, who have followed him from Bethsaida on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They've followed him to Capernaum, and Jesus has now gone through this really important discourse in chapter 6 to these men in the synagogue. The first thing that Jesus said was that he had come down from heaven. Now again, we talked about this before. Imagine listening to a guy standing there, flesh and blood, and he says, I've come down from, a, from heaven. My origins are from the heavens above. What a shocking statement that must have been. And it caused a great stir among the crowd in the synagogue there. And John reports that when he said that, they began to grumble. They began to mutter about this. And so Jesus rebukes them. Remember, he says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. And then he gives the reason why they should stop grumbling. Here's why they should knock that off. He says, John 6, 44, a very famous verse. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let me say it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So nobody can come to Christ and be saved unless God first draws that person to himself. That is a hard truth. We've been going through that over recent weeks. God first has to change the rebellious condition of a man's heart. He will never come unless God changes the heart. God must first open spiritually blind eyes to be able to see the truth. He first has to give a man new desires and new affections. God first has to grant him both the spiritual ability and the spiritual desire to incline himself towards heaven. No natural man will do that on his own. God has to do that work. He must first cause that man to humble himself. We did this a couple weeks ago, right? That is, that is absolutely essential to be saved, a humbling of oneself, to repent of sin, and to trust in Christ alone. None of that happens without God moving first through this thing we saw in John chapter 3, what Jesus calls the new birth. Amen? So we up to speed on that? Those are, guys, those are foundational truths. If we don't understand that, we will never understand salvation. We'll never understand how people can come to Jesus. And then Jesus added this important supporting truth in the very next verse, John 6, 45, quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah, he said to the crowd, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what he means by that is there's this unbreakable connection between God's drawing and God's teaching in the heart of man. 
okay? So through his spirit, God first moves to illuminate truth in the person that he's drawing, causing them to learn, causing them to understand the extent of his grace. And Jesus is implying here, he says, all those whom God teaches in this way, every single person who God teaches in this way, in the heart, he says, will, with certainty, come to me. Amazing stuff. Now, having said all that, I'm going to give you a book recommendation this morning. I don't often do this, but I've had several of you guys say, Jeff, this is hard stuff. Can you give me a book recommendation that will help me to understand this interesting dynamic between God's sovereign hand in election and human responsibility? And so I have recommended this book to several of you guys. There it is. And so I'll go ahead and put it on the screen. If anybody else wants to buy it, it is a very solid academic book from R.C. Sproul. He wrote it back in the late 1990s. It's still fantastic, calling willed, called Willing to Believe. And it's a historical survey of, of the most famous theologians throughout church history who have discussed this issue of sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, so everything from Pelagius to Augustine and from Arminius to Luther and others, you're going to get the full picture of what theologians have taught over the years. And of course, Sprawl is going to give you his reform perspective on it. Highly recommend this book. You can take a photo if you want of that or just shoot me a text and I'll, I'll send you a link on Amazon. But the title of that book is a great lead-in for our subject matter this morning. Remember, I said this a couple weeks ago, God doesn't coerce anyone. God does not externally coerce anyone to believe in Jesus against his or her own will. Instead, what God does is he works in the heart to align our will with his will. So that we become, quite literally, according to the, the title of this book, we become willing to believe in Jesus because of the work that God did in our hearts to make us both free and willing to trust in him. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? But God does that work, and then we come freely and willingly to trust in him. So let's make sure, as we affirm the Bible's teaching on election, that we don't stop there. We don't fail to talk about how people need to actively respond to God's choosing and drawing. See, there's no robotic fatalism in biblical Christianity. We don't say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. If God has chosen us, it doesn't matter what we do. No, we must exercise faith in him. That is our response. And at the same time, we know that the only people who will exercise faith in him are those whom God has chosen and is drawing. Amen? So we got to get both sides of that coin correct. So the key word for today and our passage for today, the key word that helps us to understand this, the action word, is the word eat. Of all things, it's the word eat. In the eight verses we're about to read, you're going to hear the word eat seven times. Now we know, yeah, Glenn's very excited, right? It's going to make you hungry. <laughs> what we eat matters, doesn't it? Yeah. We all, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Mike. We know that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. And everywhere you look today, I mean, this was not the case when I was in my 20s. Everywhere you look today, somebody has advice on how you can eat more healthy. I mean, I guess it's maybe it's social media or whatever. It's the Atkins diet or it's, it's keto or it's paleo or it's intermittent fasting or you should take this supplement or you should try this superfood. Everybody has advice. It's all over the place. And we hear this phrase all the time, you are what you eat. So this is not a new a theme in the Bible that we can't relate to or that we can't explore, feeding on the right food each day can help you stay physically healthy. True? I know some of you would affirm that. Feeding on the right food each day can help you stay physically healthy. And we know that if you feed on the wrong things, 
If you're just taking in sugary snacks or fast food, you're going to feel sluggish and it's going to negatively affect the quality of your life. Well, guess what? The very same principle is true spiritually. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, back up to verse 51. Now, eating has already been a major theme in this chapter. Maybe you've noticed it already. We've read the following. We've read that Food which perishes versus food that endures to eternal life. Make sure we choose well. We've read about Jesus being the true bread out of heaven, the bread of God, the bread of life, and the living bread. All of those things. And Jesus then has made this important claim. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So we've already seen a whole bunch of references to eating. But let's back up now to verse 51. Remember, if you were at the beach last weekend, Right? I left you with this cliffhanger in verse 51. I, I promised we would explain it today. Verse 51 is incredibly important. What Jesus has said so far in this discourse in John chapter 6 has been mind-blowing for these Jewish men, but the statement he's going to make in verse 51 is like dropping a bomb in the middle of that synagogue. Here's what he says. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. So the use of this word flesh would have been quite shocking to these Jewish men. And it's going to get even more shocking as Jesus goes along. In today's passage, what we're going to look at is how the Jews in that time responded to this hard teaching that Jesus is about to deliver. And then next week, we'll get to how the disciples respond to it? How do they, as Jewish men, understand what Jesus is saying? How do they cope with the difficult truth that Jesus is trying to deliver? So let's keep going. Look at verse 52. Look at the response now to this idea of flesh. It says, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And as you read that, don't read it flat. There is passion in that. There is anger. There is zeal. How can he say that? You can picture them raising their voices in the synagogue. How can this man say that? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, and I picture him, he got quiet again, right? They've shouted, how can you say this? Now he says, look, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, wow, you have no life in yourselves. Imagine the controversy. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides or remains in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me." This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers or not as your ancestors ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So guys, there's no sugarcoating this. This is offensive language. That is if you were there that day and you weren't listening carefully. If you were there that day and you weren't able to spiritually discern what Jesus is getting at. So we're going to try to explain that. Now, if you weren't paying attention... You would have been there and you would have thought to yourself, this man is promoting cannibalism, right? And by the way, this was an early charge against the Christians from the Roman world. They couldn't discern this either. They kept hearing about this sacrifice of this man who died as a criminal on a cross and how church members were eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the Romans thought Christians were cannibals as well. But this is obviously absurd, absurd. 
the Torah could not have been more clear on the subject matter. In its prohibition of drinking blood or e even eating flesh with the blood still in it. According to the law in Leviticus 17, any person who ate blood should be cut off from Israel. And God goes on to say that I will set my face against anyone who does such a thing in the land. So it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to stand in a synagogue and promote cannibalism. Now, as we know from our culture today, sometimes people actually desire to misunderstand in fact, they love to, to twist the words and the meaning of words in order to do what? To manufacture outrage against people they don't like. And now Jesus has opened the door for his opponents to do just that, to manufacture outrage, to twist his words, to make him say something he didn't intend to say. That's what we're going to see among some in the crowd that day. These are spiritually blind people who willfully misunderstand Jesus because they have a desire to see him eliminated. Now, from Jesus' perspective, what, what is he thinking as he says this? Well, I don't think there's any, any way we can, we can uh, explain it other than he is intentionally choosing to use this type of hard language. Why? Because he's trying to drive away the people he knows do not believe in him, will never believe in him, and actually want to oppose him. He's willfully choosing these words. And he knows this is all part of God's sovereign plan. Listen, the image of the cross is beginning to emerge, right? The, the future cross is beginning to emerge. And the language that Jesus is using is designed to chase away those who oppose him, to chase away those who will never believe in him. So rather than softening his language to appease the crowds or to soften his language to build a bigger following or to be less offensive, Jesus actually does the opposite. And we can learn something from this, right? Not that we should be intentionally offensive to, to unbelievers, but we don't shy away from hard language that speaks truth, right? Always with grace, always in love, but we speak truth. So Jesus is going to go more offensive. He's going to be more off-putting. So you can picture the scene here, right? John says, look, he says, this, he says this hard thing, and they start to argue amongst themselves. So they've gone from grumbling back, I think it was at verse 41, and now they're arguing in verse 52. The crowds are becoming more agitated. They're becoming more divided in their opinion of this rabbi from Nazareth. And you can probably imagine some of the content of this argument. One man says, look, this guy is insane. I don't care what miracles he's done. That's crazy talk. I will not listen to it. That is obscene. Another man says, look, I don't exactly know what he means, but he has to be speaking figuratively, right? And so they begin to argue with each other. They're debating it there in the synagogue. Does Jesus know what they're talking about? Yeah, all along he's been aware of, of what's in their heart and all of the content of their arguments. But once again, we've seen this multiple times, he isn't interested in coddling these folks or trying to lay his pearls before swine, so to speak, right? He's not going to try to sell them on who he is and what his mission is. He rests in the sovereign hand of his Father. He knows that God alone draws and teaches those that he purposes to save, and so in light of that truth, Jesus is able to simply speak truth, in fact, to double down on what he's claimed about himself and what's required for us to come to him and be saved. He's going to double down on that truth. So it begs the question then, why this emphasis on bread? Why this emphasis on eating? Well, first of all, you have to understand that bread was, I mean, we love bread, right? Okay, good. I mean, we all love bread. But back then, in this culture, in this time, bread was such a staple of life that it made sense to use this type of metaphor. It speaks to the people where they're at. But I want you to think deeper about what you know about eating. I'm going to put some principles on the screen. 
If my clicker will work. There you go. Thanks, Kyle. So a couple principles about eating that's, that will then apply spiritually. Number one, eating is a physical response to a human need, right? At some point this morning, as I drone on, you're going to get hungry. No, Jeff, I would never get that. No, I understand. You eat when you feel hungry, right? It's as simple as that. None of us spends time pondering that response or asking questions about it. But if you ignore that need long enough and you choose not to eat, you will die. So eating is necessary for life. Keep that in mind. Principle number two, eating only benefits you when you actually eat. I mean, that, that seems kind of, kind of simple, but it's true. It doesn't do you any good to just smell food, right, or to watch somebody else eat it. It doesn't benefit you to philosophize about the bread or to consider its, its chemistry or its makeup. Does he know good? You actually have to ingest the food in order to get benefit from it. Simple? Number three, eating has to be personal. Nobody can eat it for you. Nobody can eat food for you. You'll get no benefit from that at all. If you stand by and just watch other people eat, you will die. <laughs> right? You have to appropriate that food for yourself. You have to eat it. It has to be personal. Okay, so now, with those in mind, I want you to think spiritually about the metaphor that Jesus is using about eating bread. Let me walk you through it. Number one, human beings have a spiritual need which requires a necessary response. We have a spiritual need which requires a necessary response. If you ignore that need and refuse to come to Jesus as the bread of life, you will remain in your sins and you will be lost for all eternity. And so once you've awakened to that truth and awakened to your lost condition, you have to respond if you want to live. Make sense? Number two, you have to actually believe and actually receive Christ as Lord. Hearing the truth alone isn't enough. Speculating about the truth won't get the job done. Admiring Jesus from arm's length or just being intellectually interested in the Bible will give you no long-term benefits. Make sense? In order to be saved, the truth about Jesus has to actually be taken hold of and ingested for one to be saved. Number three, you have to appropriate Christ personally. Nobody can take your place. Not me, not your mentor, not your parents, your family. Nobody can do this for you. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the Savior. You've got to believe he's your Savior. You've got to believe that he's taken your place on the cross, that he's atoned for your sins. So if you want to live, you have to take him within you, just like the physical food that you take in in order to live. Eat the bread of life or you will die. That's why Jesus is using this metaphor. It's, it's very simple, would have applied very easily to his first century audience. It still applies today. Those spiritual truths are critically important. Now, before we go on to unravel the mystery then of why he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, let's make sure we understand what he's not saying. How many of you guys, when you, when you first heard that passage, you thought of communion? It's okay to admit it. A whole bunch of people, right? The language makes us, makes us go there. And that's a common interpretation of John 6, that Jesus has in mind communion. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they use John 6 to support their views of the Eucharist. In particular, their view of what we call transubstantiation, where it's claimed that the bread and wine of the Eucharist are literally, literally transformed. After the priest prays over it, literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Now that's silly talk, right? 
Because how many bodies, physical bodies, did Jesus have? Does he have? One. But boy, it's in a lot of places at a lot of times. It makes no sense, right? If every single Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox is feeding on the one body of Jesus every Sunday all over the world for hundreds or thousands of years, there's a problem here. There's not enough body to go around. So it can't be the literal body and blood of Christ. But the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox continue to claim that believers literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they root a lot of it in this text in John chapter 6. Let me give you four reasons why that interpretation is deeply flawed. Okay, number one, put them on the screen. First, consider the historical moment that we're talking about in the gospel narrative. What's going on, right? Consider what, where we are in the timeline between John chapter 6 and then consider in the timeline when communion was instituted. That last supper meal in the upper room with his disciples is a year away from what we're talking about here in John chapter 6. It's a year away. So that means that here in John 6, Jesus would be speaking an event that had not happened yet and would have absolutely no relevance to the people he's talking to. That's the first one. Number two, there's a linguistic reason why he's not referring to communion here. Okay? He leaves out a key word here in John 6 that is found in every single New Testament passage about communion. That's the word body. In the Greek, it's soma. Okay? He doesn't use that word. Think about this. 1 Corinthians 11 says, This is my body. Matthew 26, take and eat, this is my body. Mark 14, take, this is my body. Luke 22, this is my body which is given for you. All four communion passages in the New Testament use the same word soma. But here in John 6, what word is used? Flesh. That's the Greek word sarx. In fact, you can go all through John 6, you will not one time find Jesus using the word body. So it makes sense that he's not making any direct reference to what he will institute a year from this point. So there's a historical reason. There's a linguistic reason. Number three is this. Christ divinely knew who he was talking to this day. He was talking to unbelievers. Unbelievers who would have no right or ability to participate in his body and blood through a communion service. Remember, communion is given for believers only. So the question's asked, what point would there be in him instituting a future ordinance at this time among a people who would never, ever participate in it? That's number three. Number four is the strongest one of all, and it's the most important one theologically. Jesus says that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is necessary, necessary for salvation. Look again at verses 53 and 54. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So whatever he's talking about here, whatever Jesus is talking about, and we'll figure that out in just a second, whatever he's referring to here, it results in salvation. And yet we know participating in the Lord's table or taking communion is not salvific. It doesn't save anybody, right? Yes, it's a sacred time for believers. We should take it very seriously because it's a time of worship and remembrance. It's a time of spiritual participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. But Scripture is very clear that salvation is only by God's grace alone, only through faith alone, not through any ritual, not through any sacrament or ordinance of the church. This is really important. So the next time a Roman Catholic friend of yours brings this up, just make sure you point this out. Now, he's going to say that the Eucharist is essential to salvation. Boy, that's opening the door to a really good conversation, isn't it? By faith alone. 
One scholar puts it this way, and this is a really great quote. He says, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. That's the right way to look at it. Amen? So it's not about communion. And if it's not about communion, the question then is, what did Jesus actually mean? Let's walk through it. First, it's important to establish this baseline fact here. Jesus is not talking about in this passage how to, have a, to live a happier, more fulfilled life. What he's talking about here is a spiritual matter that divides humanity into two groups, those who have life and those who don't. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. It is very, very important. Couldn't be bigger, right? So what does he mean? We should know this. What does he mean by eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, the best way to understand this, and I'm going to put these two verses on the screen, the best way to try to figure this out is to look at two distinct statements that Jesus made in this discourse, verse 54, and compare it with verse 40. You see them on the screen there. Let's look at them. First of all, 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Guys, that is just a metaphorical way of saying what Jesus literally said in verse 40. Do you see it? Everyone who beholds or looks upon the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. See the comparison? See the, the, the similarities there? The reason this comparison makes sense is because, first of all, it's included in the very same discourse, in the very same location, with the very same audience. And then you look at the two promised results, and you see the similarities. In both cases, whether the person is eating and drinking or beholding and believing, they get two things. Number one, eternal life. And number two, that Jesus will raise them up on the last day. So here's the bottom line. In Jesus' mind, eating his flesh and drinking his blood are simply a figurative way of saying, look upon me, believe in me, and receive life in me. That's all. That's it. So Augustine is famous for looking at this and making a very short, simple statement. And it's very true. He says, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. Eating and drinking here is equivalent to beholding and believing. Make sense? Now, we always have to be careful when we talk about this idea of believing, right? Because we can mis misconstrue that all the time. We can misconstrue it as, as, as just a, an intellectual exercise. Well, yeah, I believe that. I believe that that's true. So in theology, we use the term appropriate. When we talk about believing, when the Bible talks about believing in Greek, it's much more than just intellectual. It's trusting. It's putting your life on the line for this thing. We use the term appropriating. We have to appropriate Jesus for ourselves. Now, what does that word mean? Well, the English verb for appropriate simply means to take possession of something personally. That is really important. To appropriate Jesus is to take possession of him in a personal way. So to have eternal life and to be raised up on the last day, you and I have to appropriate Jesus. We have to look upon him. We have to believe in him, and we have to make him our own by faith, appropriating him, taking him within my being as I would take a physical meal and a physical drink. That's the picture he's drawing here. We ingest it. We take it on as our own, not just believe with our head. It's all of your possession to say, I am in Jesus and he is in me. That's what's going on here. Now, as I say that, the question gets raised. We'll look at verse 55. Jesus said his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And Roman Catholics love that. 
What exactly does he mean? How is that possible? Well, the answer is found in the preceding verse and the next verse. Look again at verse 54, and let's flush this out. Flush this out, get it? <laughs> I did not intend... <sighs> did not intend to say that. Sometimes the Spirit just works. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay, that's important. So Jesus' flesh and blood are true in this sense, that they come with real promises and that they produce real results. True promises, true results. Verse 54 tells us that this kind of food and drink gives us the truest and most vital form of life imaginable, eternal life. The physical life we have now is nothing compared to the truest form of life, which is life eternal. The promise is there, the result is there, if we'll eat and drink of Jesus, right? And then verse 55 tells us that this kind of food and drink produces in us a true union with Jesus, a true union with him. By looking upon him and believing in him, we now abide in him. That, that is a metaphysical mystery that just blows my mind. But think about that. We abide in him and he abides in us. The creator God abides within the heart of the believer. What an amazing and mysterious truth that is. Jesus in us and we in him. In fact, our union with Christ is so airtight that his death is counted for our death. And his life is counted for our life. And aren't you glad? Amen. Amen. It's so airtight. And so now, because we are in him and he's in us, we have the most intimate fellowship with, with God that we can ever even imagine. In fact, I don't think we'll even understand it until we get to the next phase of life and see everything for what it truly is. For now, we see dimly, right? And we sort of understand this, but this union we have with Jesus is amazing, this intimate fellowship. His flesh is true food, his blood is true drink, because the promises that come with it produce the most sacred and joyful results that we can experience on this earth. Think about that. Now, before we move on, let me make this observation, because I sort of ruled out communion, but it's clear here that, that while Jesus isn't, isn't formally instituting what we call the Lord's table here, there's no question that the unique language that he chooses to use is, is, ought to bring up certain things in our hearts and our minds, okay? The words flesh and blood obviously are designed to cause us to look forward to what? To the cross. This is sacrificial language. When he says in verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, there's no question. He's using the language of sacrifice. He's using the language of substitutionary atonement, He's looking forward to the cross in that sense. It's even possible here that he's intending to bring out the image of the Passover lamb, which would make sense because he's speaking in a synagogue to Jewish men. But unfortunately, his audience that day, they're spiritually blind and they're spiritually deaf. They cannot spiritually discern the true meaning behind his words. All they know is, I'm offended. And most of them have written him off. And by the time we get to the end of chapter six, this whole ministry, public ministry of Jesus is going to look from the outside like a failure because people are going to abandon him in droves. But we'll get to that next week. Okay, here's another offense going on here. And this one's a little more subtle, but let me talk about it. Keep in mind that all along throughout this discourse and indeed throughout his entire ministry so far 
in Galilee, Jesus has been making a claim of exclusive priority. Exclusive priority. That he and he alone is the one who grants eternal life. Now for a Jew, think about how hard that would be. He is claiming to be the only one who can grant eternal life. And of course, later in chapter 14, he is going to famously make this even more clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he says. And what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, imagine as a Jew hearing those words. Now, look at these two passages. There they are on the screen. Earlier, we learned that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father first draws him. Later, we're going to learn that no one can come to the Father unless they first believe in Jesus. So you see how it works both ways. It's the oneness of the Father and the Son. And so those are wild claims, aren't they? And so as I've said before in this preaching series, you can write Jesus off as a crazy man. You can write him off as a liar, but you can never say that he hedged when it came to who he was and what kind of exclusive authority he wielded. He was very, very clear about it. And while the Gentiles, it's so funny, we looked at how the Gentiles in Samaria received him, how he shared the same truths. He talked about living water. You got to drink this living water. And what did they do? They opened up their arms and embraced him, right? We see great salvation out, you know, come, come to pass in Samaria, but not in, not in Galilee, not among the Jews. The Jews are stubborn at this point, aren't they? They'd be happy to add Jesus to their list of religious gurus. They could say, oh, he's... He, he's an out-of-the-box thinker, right? He's a, he's a brilliant teacher. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, a great rabbi. But they aren't going to even think for a moment that he is the only one able to grant eternal life. The exclusive Savior come from heaven? No. That's a step too far for them. Lay aside their genetic identity as God's chosen people to eat his flesh and drink his blood? No way. We won't do it. Trust in Jesus alone and not their good works under the Torah? Not a chance. They're not going to have it, folks. And it's not a surprise to Jesus. He knows exactly. Remember, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Listen, you and I bump into the very same objection when we share our faith today that, that Jesus was bumping into here. There's so many other religions to consider, right? So many ways that people can be spiritual without being religious. And so people say, don't give me this exclusive claim. I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me that Jesus is the only way, that there's only one way to God. The world shouts that at us. That's so intolerant. How dare you say that billions of Muslims and Hindus have to lay aside all their traditions and all their beliefs and believe in your Jesus? It's too exclusive. We won't have it. Right? And so as we hear that, we remember what Jesus said, right? In John chapter 17, he said, look, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. I, and we opened our, 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 our service this morning by talking about just a smidgen of the hate that's coming our way. Expect it. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. As Christians, we sometimes find the Lord's words here hard. And it's sometimes difficult to be faithful, to just preach the purity of the gospel to people we love so much and we want to see them saved when these sayings are so hard. But hard saying or not, we've staked our lives on the exclusive nature of the gospel, on the exclusive, exclusive nature of who Jesus is. There is no other choice. We are all in on this, right? Amen? We're all in on this truth about he's the only way. But there's great comfort and peace in always remembering that the source of these types of hard truths, and there's many of them in the Bible, they came from Jesus' lips, not ours. 
We're only, we're only proclaiming what he first proclaimed. And so we can rest in that, right? Because we know that no one will come to Christ unless the Father draws them. So we can take hard sayings like this and say, this is what Jesus said, and we can rest in that. We don't have to try to reshape the message because God is sovereign. He will save whom he will save. So we can deliver hard truths, yeah, with grace, yes, with love. But we can say, look, guys, I didn't say this. Jesus said this. Humble yourself. Bow your knee to him. See that it's true. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not what I said. It's what he said. We don't have to reshape it. That's the mistake that so many Christians are making today, watering it all down, making it so simple that it's no longer really the truth. We don't have to do that. Now, here's the sad PS to the story, the sort of the epilogue to the story about Capernaum. Think about what's going on. Think about the unbelief that Jesus is facing here. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. I'll put this passage on the screen. It says, Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Why? Because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Remember, that was the place where Jesus fed the 20,000 people. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ash. Remember, Tyre and Sidon, Baal-worshipping pagan cities. But they would have responded better than you Jews. Wow. That's rough, isn't it? Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. To whom much is given, much is required. And Bethsaida had received much. They had great responsibility. Now, look at this. And you, Capernaum. This is where this discussion, this discourse is happening. You, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What a terrifying prophecy. To whom much is given, much is required. It will be worse for Capernaum on the day of judgment than for Sodom because the people of Capernaum were eyewitnesses to the miracle. They heard Jesus teach. He told them exactly what they needed to be saved and they were offended and they walked away. Now, is there an application for us in this today? We're not Capernaum, right? Okay, good. Right? Come in, plug in Santa Clarita there. It's not a pretty picture. What about us? What can we learn from this? Well, there's a really important practical application in this passage for modern-day believers like us. Earlier I said that there was a key word in this passage. It's eat, and that you'd find it seven times in these eight verses, right? Surprise. In the Greek, there are two different words here for eat. And this is really important. For example, verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. There it is. In the Greek, the verb is estheo. Okay? It's the same verb that's going to be used here in verse 51 and 52 and 53. It's the most common way in Koine Greek to say eat. It's just the simplest form of consuming a meal or, or eating something and digesting it. But when you get to verse 56, 57, and 58, the language shifts. For example, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The Greek verb there is different. It's trogo. And that word, interestingly, was originally 
used in ancient times to refer to the way animals chew on their cud. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about? Animals that just con- you always see them. They're just constantly chewing. This idea of just chewing and chewing and chewing. In the classical era, then it got, it got applied to human beings who do more than just eat. They feed on something. It's this process of munching or, or chewing over a long period of time, of feeding on something for a period of time. So the best way to see the contrast there is in verse 58, where both words are used. Look at it on the screen if you need to. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate, as Theo, not as the ancestors in the wilderness ate. Remember, they just ate physical manna, just sustained their physical life, and died. He who eats, trogo, chews on, feeds on this bread, Jesus' flesh, will live forever. In other words, eating the man in the wilderness didn't save anybody, right? It was the simplest form of eating. It was necessary for physical life, and that's it. But that second form of eating, that second form of eating is different. Essentially, it reads, he who feeds upon this bread from heaven will live forever. So the first one is carnal. The second one is spiritual. The first one results in physical death. The second one results in eternal life. Two completely different forms of eating. But you've got to see the distinction there because it's so incredibly important for our practical application today. So first of all, as we look at this truth, we ought to ask ourselves the salvation question. Everybody here, I know we get tired of hearing this, but let's ask ourselves the most basic salvation question. Have you personally truly fed upon the bread of heaven? in a salvific way. We have to keep asking ourselves that question. Have you personally fed upon the bread of heaven in a salvific way? Have you actually believed and received Jesus in your heart, taken him in within you? Or have you held him at arm's distance and kept it intellectual only? Have you ingested him in a personal way? That's where it has to start, guys. And if not, your status before God this morning is like those Jews in Capernaum. It's no different than them. As Jesus said in verse 53, you have no life in yourself if you've not appropriated Christ in your heart. You stand under God's righteous judgment this morning if that's you. I hope that's not. But if you have fed upon the bread of life and therefore you are found in him this morning, here's the follow-up question. What are you feeding on right now? Christian, what are you feeding on now in your life? This is not just simple eating and consuming. This is feeding on over a period of time. What are you feeding on in your life? Having believed and received him, do you still wake up each day with a hunger and a thirst for Christ and for eternal things? Or more often than not, are you more interested in the the feeding of the things that the world has to offer to you? Is that where you're doing the vast majority of your feeding is in the things of this world? Are you settling for temporary satisfaction? instead of eternal satisfaction. We can do that as Christians, right? We can slip, we can easily slip away into worldly living and completely forget the truth. That, by the way, that's why it's so important to be here on Sundays and so important to be part of a C group, to get those, those constant hits, to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters, to remind each other of the importance of the gospel. Mm. So, verse 56 in our text speaks of abiding in Jesus. Abiding, the Greek word there can be translated remaining in him or staying with him. We're to remain in Jesus always. And he promises in that same verse that he will abide in us. 
Listen, Jesus will always stay with us. And he will always be faithful to that. So listen, friends, don't take that for granted. Continue to feed upon the bread of heaven. That's where satisfaction is found. That's where life is found, feeding on the bread of heaven. Now you say, look, Jeff, I really, man, I've just, all these years I've been a Christian, I really want to mature and grow in the faith. Good, that's great. Are you feeding on spiritually nutritious things? I mean, that's the question I'm going to ask you. I really want to grow. I hear this all the time, and it's a good Good thing to want. But the follow-up question is, well, tell me about your diet. Not what you're eating physically, but what's your spiritual diet look like? It's important. I'm not talking about, you know, well, I have a spiritually sugary snack now and then, or you know what, I have a good meal every Sunday morning. That's not enough. That's not enough. I'm talking about regularly feeding on a diet of God's Word. Developing a greater hunger to know Christ in a deeper way, in a personal way, a hunger to learn and understand and apply biblical principles in your life. Not just knowledge, but praxis, right? I know, but I do. I'm a doer of God's word. A hunger to engage in the essential rhythms of the Christian life, right? A hunger to pray, a hunger to worship, a hunger to fellowship with others, a hunger to care for others and to to serve the body, You already know this truth in a physical way, but you've got to understand that it applies in a spiritual sense too. Occasional nutrition, occasional nutrition, it's good, it's helpful, but you need consistent nutrition if you want to grow up, if you want to mature in the faith. There's simply no substitute. But it's more than that too. This is the cool thing about the gospel. It's one thing to say, I know I need this. This is how I sustain myself spiritually. Why do we enjoy eating good food? because it tastes good. There's joy in it, right? Not just because it's nourishing and sustains life, because it brings us pleasure and enjoyment. That's the way, (laughs) foodie, foodie alert. If you're hungry for more of Jesus, that's the way you'll feel about feeding on God's word. It's a joy. It's where pleasure is found. Knowing the will of God, learning more about this one who has died on a cross for you, who has given everything for you to know him better that should be a source of joy in your life and listen if you aren't hungry for that there's something missing and and my suggestion would be to grab somebody in this church family a mentor a discipler and say help me to understand this principle better why aren't i feeling that pleasure and enjoyment in diving into god's word let somebody help you with that you not only need it for nourishment but you ought to enjoy it it ought to be a sense of joy friends we have the privilege of abiding in jesus Think about that. What a privilege that is. King David in Psalm 16 says this. He says, In your presence is fullness of joy, Lord. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Think about how Paul felt about this. Nothing compares to being found in Christ, he says. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says, and count them all as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There is nothing in this world that can compete with that. Nothing. He who eats this bread will live forever. What can possibly compare to that? So feed on him, right? May we at Oak Hill continue to be a hungry people, not satisfied in temporary things, but satisfied only with more of Jesus. Amen? Let's encourage each other with those words and let's pray about it. Father, thank you for the encouragement of this passage, Lord, the, the promises that you've given here are amazing. God, 
The fact that you would abide with creatures, with sinful men and women like us, and that you would do it because it brings you joy to know us, to be with us, to know that we will live with you forever. These are amazing things, Lord. Seal those truths in our hearts. Lord, help us not to just be drawn into the world by all this other stuff and lose focus on how good you are, how gracious you are, and what you've done in our lives. May that be the message that comes through most today. Lord, may we have a zeal and a passion to share even hard truths with people who are lost. All the people that we come into contact with right now, Lord, who don't know you. May we be willing to be bold enough, bold enough to share the gospel truth. Not holding back, but knowing, Lord, that you're sovereign over all of it. Give us that boldness, Lord, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.